Ritual is a thread of human history presenting a profound paradox. People ascribe the utmost importance to the rituals and they impact every corner of our lives, yet few can explain why they are so important. From handshakes to hazings, parades to parties, rituals surround every aspect of our lives and yet the logic behind them has remained a mystery until now. Our guest, researcher and best-selling author Dr. Dimitris Zigalatis, has spent much of his career studying ritual and how seemingly senseless acts turn out to be the very thing that make life worth living. Welcome to this 273rd episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast, your trusted resource for engaging evidence-based health, wellness, and high-performance insights. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper of Catalyst Coaching 360, and I picked up Dr. Zigalatis' book titled Ritual on a recommendation from one of our prior guests, and it did not disappoint. We reached out to him, and he was gracious in agreeing to join us in the midst of his busy schedule. Many of our listeners are unhappy in their current careers, and, and maybe you've been pondering ideas about other options or potentially doing something on the side in an area that you really enjoy, something to which you could wake up every morning knowing you were using your gifts to make a positive difference in this world. That's exactly why many people choose to pursue their certification as a health and wellness coach. If that's you, we'd be happy to talk you through it. Our next MBHWC-approved training is coming up soon, and it's 100% virtual, so you can complete the training from anywhere. And I mean anywhere, as we've had students from all corners of the globe joining us. Email us anytime, results at catalystcoaching360.com, and we can set up a time to discuss it. That's results at catalystcoaching360.com, or check out the website specific to the training institute at catalyst coachinginstitute.com for details and registration. And now, it's time to tap into the power of ritual with Dr. Demetrius Zigalatis on the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast. Love having you here. Great job with your book, Ritual. Uh, let's jump right in. Can, can you get us started with contextualizing what you mean by ritual? Uh, obviously, it includes things like parades, church services, birthday celebrations, but does it also include simple things like, I don't know, wearing a certain shirt on game day or using the same coffee cup on Mondays? Can you, can you walk us through what you mean by this idea of ritual? Yes. First of all, sometimes we say that there are as many definitions of ritual as there are anthropologists of ritual. <laughs> but for my purposes, I think there are two key characteristics to, to ritual. So we can point to structural characteristics, things like repetition and rigidity and redundancy. So we do things, if, if I need to wash my hands, to clean them, they might take me 20 seconds. But mm -hmm. if I perform a purification ritual, that might take me hours. And of course, ritual actions have internal repetition. Uh, they have repetitive movements. They might be repeated every day, every week, every year, and so on and so forth. Beyond that, um, the key characteristic of ritual to me is that it has. there's no connection between the actions that one undertakes in a ritual and the, and the goals that these actions are supposed to achieve. Or sometimes there are no goals at all. The performance itself is the goal. That's why sometimes uh, when I ask my, my students to give me examples of their, their personal rituals, they'll say things like brushing my teeth every morning. And to me, this is not a ritual because it has a clear outcome. And the actions that you perform are related to that outcome. But if you were to wave your toothbrush in the air every morning with the belief that it cleanses your teeth or with no belief at all, now that would be a ritual. So that's very helpful because I was batching, I think, a little bit routine in with ritual. And you're saying, nope, nope, routine is functional. Ritual in the end may be functional, but there's not a clear connection between A and B. Is that accurate? Exactly. So rituals and routines could be seen as 
either two sides of the of the same coin or maybe two opposites even in the sense that the routines take something that is functional and they make it habitual so we don't have to think about it yes rituals on the other hand take something that is uh, that seems to have no function and turn it into something special something important and this is why we say things like I'm into the habit of going to to this gas station, although it's more expensive. I just by habit, I go there. But if we stopped going to, if somebody suggested that we won't go to another one, we wouldn't find this disturbing. Uh, whereas when if somebody asked us to change our rituals, we'd find that disturbing. Mm, so this okay. um, feeling that that something is, is special and that is important to perform, this is also associated with ritual. Okay, that's very helpful. All right. So early in the book, and, and by the way, his book is Ritual. We talked about it in the introduction. Great, great job. I did Thank not you. pick this up because I was going to interview you. I picked it up because I just thought, wow, this looks fascinating. And it was. So early in the book, you have some intriguing discoveries indicating, and I'm quoting you here, first came the temple, then came the city. We always think of it the other way around. Can you briefly explain the background behind this statement and then clarify why that was so important? Yes, this refers to an archaeological site known as Gobekli Tepe. This is located in present-day Turkey, close to the Syrian border. And this is a discovery that really challenges everything we thought we knew about human history and human civilization. Yeah. yeah. And the reason it does that is um, what archaeologists have found there. There's this German archaeologist, Klaus Schmidt, who uh, discovered this site. He found a series of circular temple-like structures, each one of them constructed by using gigantic monolithic pillars. We're talking about 15, 20 tons each. And those had to be carved by, from a nearby quarry and carried there and placed there. And all of this happened about 12,000 years ago or even more, which suggests that this happened by people who were hunter-gatherers. They had no permanent settlement. This predates um, farming, predates the wheel, predates uh, writing, it predates every every one of the hallmarks of civilization. To get a sense of how old, just how old this uh, place was, it was twice as old as Stonehenge and three times as old as the pyramids. Wow. So Smith argues that this was used by hunter-gatherers who traveled sometimes for thousands of miles to visit this, uh, perhaps as a yearly pilgrimage. And it was only several hundred years later that we find the first evidence of permanent settlement in the area. And this suggests that um, for a very long time, we thought that uh, our ancestors uh, discovered or got into farming um, in order to pursue a food surplus. And it was this food surplus that later led to, to things like um, um, large-scale societies that, of course, come with hierarchies and specialized labor and, and big gods and, and religions and bureaucracies and, and armies right. and uh, free time for those specialists to develop things like technologies and philosophy and so on and so forth. So all of the all of civilization came from that decision, which was a, a, a decision based on material needs. But if Smith is right, and, and Smith says first came the temple and then the city. If he's right, then that suggests that um, the, this urge to to settle down, which, by the way, had terrible consequences. If you compare the lives of hunter-gatherers to the lives of the first farmers, uh, farming is backbreaking work, and, and it brings all kinds of 
things like exposure to pathogens, uh, the average height dropped by by four inches. Mm. Life quality was uh, was terrible. Um, this, of course, brought things like the exploitation of uh, of the masses by the ruling classes, concentrated wealth, and huge inequality. So, why did we settle into into this? Clearly, our ancestors didn't get into farming so that thousands of years later we could uh, enjoy the benefits by having things like healthcare. Um, so Smith suggests that this decision was based on not material, but but spiritual needs. It was based on their urge to perform rituals, to gather together and enact those ceremonies that would have been terribly important to them, so important that they, they changed their way of life so that it could be um, near the temple and so that they could they could have a food production to um, to sustain the large numbers of visitors to that temple. So it's a groundbreaking hypothesis. It is. It is, and, and more to and come. If probably. it's true, it changes everything we we, we thought we knew about human uh, civilization. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. You, you you introduce the reader to the minimal group paradigm and how the minimal requirement to feel attached to one's group is simply the existence of the group itself. That seems like a pretty low hurdle. What is the significant in our significance in our world today, especially we're on the health and wellness performance podcast here. So a lot of fads, a lot of stuff out there. People want to be part of a tribe. Our goal is to bring the evidence back. So talk to us about that concept of the minimal group paradigm in maybe fads and trends, and if you can lean into the wellness health side, that'd be great. This goes back to the the earliest days of social psychology. A lot of the first social psychologists were motivated to, a lot of that research um, started right after the Second World War. It was motivated by this haunting question. What is it that turns people into monsters? Why is it that people are willing to go to... Uh, to such um, lengths to defend symbols and to defend perceived uh, arbitrary groups. What is it that that creates those strong loyalties that sometimes can go horribly yes. wrong? Yes. So Henri Tightfeld was uh, one of those early social psychologists who who um, established a paradigm known as the minimal group paradigm, a paradigm for research that involves things like separating people into groups on the basis of arbitrary. Um, similarities. We can think of those similarities as similar to things like skin color or eye color or or different color flags. How far can we push that? So he pushed it very hard. He found that even if you randomly assign people into two groups and give them different color t-shirts, they come to perceive the members of, <laughs> uh, quote unquote, their team yes. as better and the the others as lesser. And when you give them things like Economic tasks, the way they have to allocate money, they they favor the members of their own group. And he he found numerous ways of splitting people into groups, even things like um, the day you were born or or a single a simple coin flip. And again and again, he found that the very existence of a group, just putting people into categories, makes them perceive those categories as essential to their identity, and therefore they treat others as different. And this is something that rituals are very good at exploiting, for better and for worse. Mm. If you want a recipe for creating community, then there's no better way to do that than ritual. But also, if you want a recipe for for creating bias against outgroups, ritual is very effective uh, in that respect, too, because it, it provides this sense of um, similarity. 
by having people wear the same clothes, uh, uh, sport the same insignia, engage in the same kinds of movements, experience the same feelings at the same time. So by aligning all of those things, by aligning our our, uh, our appearance or our interior uh, internal feelings and and thoughts, it, it creates that that sense that we're we're all in this together. We're members of the same group. That we are all alike. So obviously a huge issue in our world right now. I know this isn't necessarily the focus of your research, but just off the top of your head, are there are there suggestions, are there thoughts that you have of how we can break those down a little bit or or make them less dominate dominating in our world? So there is one one obvious suggestion here is that at the level of policy, we should always keep in mind that uh, that it's best to create inclusive rituals than than rituals that uh, that separate people into into groups. And I'm even thinking jokingly slightly, but not totally. So our daughter and son-in-law went to a rival school of myself and, and my son, and and I'm thinking, well, our family is way more important than the schools to us. So we just joke about it and we'll give each other a hard time about, oh yeah, this your team or our team, we're going to beat you guys, whatever. Is that part of it to, to reset the level of we super care about our teams. This is a great fun thing we do. We go to the games, blah, blah, blah. But our family's way more important. And so is, is there something contextualizing it of, but our community matters more? So yes, we care about whatever it is. I'm not going to name something here because it just starts down a path, but some fad, some allegiance, but our community is, I don't know. Is there anything there? So one, one important notion to this discussion is, of course, ideology. So you can have group rituals that are related to, let's say, college sports, but for the most part, those rituals are not associated with any kind of... Um, ideology that leads to great divisions uh, that people deeply care about. Of course, we can see, uh, we see that a lot of the time people do care a lot about sports, yes, but they they, do. for the most part, they don't kill each other. We can, we can get into this because in other parts of the world, people do kill yes, each other over true, sports. True. And that also is because they, they're, um, they're able to build these ideologies that, that essentially uh, dehumanize others. So by that, we can see how, um, those effects of ritual, the dark effects of rituals, uh, would be more prominent in cases where people have allegiance to strong ideologies. And those are typically things like politics or religion. Ideologies that say that if somebody does things another way, then that's the wrong way. Mm. There's one way to believe, there's one uh, correct political opinion, and everybody who doesn't share that is your enemy. So you couple this with high intensity collective rituals and that can be a recipe for disaster and there's no way again i'm somewhat humorously thinking back to the football games like they really care about their team and we really care about ours and we but but we don't really when it comes down to it the family's so much more important that we just give each other a hard time and then we move on and give each other a hug and it doesn't matter is there any way to apply something related to that, to the politics, the religion that is just separating not just this country, but worldwide. So in fact, rituals, rituals do that. The rituals do um, create a sense of family. 
uh, there's something called phenotypic matching and other animals do it. We do it as well. Our, our brain is very attentive to cues of uh, phenotypic similarity because phenotype, the way we look, uh, closely resembles genotype, the way we're connected to others through our, our genes. So if somebody looks more like me, they're more likely to be related to me. So you can see how in a, in a small mm. scale society that is very useful. We know that people fa- favor uh, even parents, they f- tend to favor children who more who look like them more. Of course, that's that can be completely unconscious, but that's how our mind uh, works. Um, now, ritual is very good at creating this sense of phenotypic similarity, both by the, through the things we said, by manipulating our behaviors when we move in synchrony, uh, when we wear the same clothes, but also through other means. In the case of very exciting rituals, if you think about this, who are the people that you you will laugh and, and and cry with. Who are the people you're going to go through traumatic moments with? That's your family. And some rituals have have the ability to do to harness this by by mimicking those situations. Mm. They will put you uh, through situations where you will laugh together and you will have you will experience utter joy, like a wedding, or uh, experiences will you will go through trauma together, like an initiation ritual, for example. By going through these experiences together, you get a sense of um, kinship mm. and this is it's no accident that in so many ritual traditions people participants call each other brothers and sisters yeah 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 now you can do this with a with a smaller group an exclusive group and then this sense of kinship will come in juxtaposition to to whoever is not included in this group but you can also do this in the, in the context of an inclusive group and then you can you can use this to create bonding so I tend to refer to rituals as social technologies. And as social, as any technology, they can be used for better and for worse. The similarities in heartbeat response that you talked about, other, other physiological elements between participants and the spectators, that was really interesting, especially the fact that alignment was more powerful in person than when you're watching it on TV. So if, if I'm watching you do, and you describe some amazing things that we're going to get into with needles and all, but uh, if I'm watching you and it's live, my heart rate changes, not at the extreme of yours, but in a similar pattern. Can you talk us through a little bit about that? And, and what did you take out of that finding? Yes, my colleagues and I have done a series of, of studies looking into this. We started with anthropological theories that argued that the, the way rituals create those strong um, bonding experiences is by producing the alignment of emotional states. So we thought, okay, how can we measure this? How can we measure this in a real life context? So the first thing we did is that we went to a small village in Spain called San Pedro Enrique where the members of the local community perform this fire walking ritual. And this is a very important event in the life of that community. There's an amphitheater that is that can host five times the local population, and it fills up because the people from the entire area and, and beyond, they come to, to watch this. So every night, every year on the summer solstice, on June 24th, um, at midnight, people build this enormous fire. They use two tons of oak wood and that produces a temperature that is strong enough to melt aluminum. We measure this at 1200 degrees Fahrenheit. And on the surface, many of the local men and women will remove their shoes, will carry somebody on their back, uh, um, 
typically somebody who's close to them, and will cross the burning coals barefooted. And the entire town uh, cheers for them, and then there's a there's a big party that lasts all night. So in that context, we used heart rate monitors to measure the levels of physiological arousal. We thought if those theories are true, then we should expect that people's heart rates will begin to synchronize. And we also wanted to see whether this would happen beyond um, or irrespective of their role in, the, in this ritual. And indeed, we found that not just the firewalkers, but even those who were watching or those who had already done it, those who were waiting for their return, those who were preparing, and their, their um, family members who were watching them, their heart rates began to synchronize, but not those of the unrelated spectators. The outsiders. This was a this was a phenomenon restricted to the group. So then we thought, okay, what is it that is driving this? Is it social proximity? So we mapped the social network of the village. We asked people who they were related to, who were their close friends with, and we found indeed that we could use those data to predict the level of physiological synchrony. So the closer you are to someone um, socially, the the stronger this effect will be for you. Moving on from this. We wanted to see whether it actually has any um, effects on behavior, because that's the important question. What does that actually do? Does it motivate people to be more pro-social? Uh, it turns out it does. So we went to um, an island in the Indian Ocean called Mauritius, and this is where I've been doing my research for 14 years now. And that island uh, is one of the most diverse societies in the world. There are Hindus and Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and particularly the Tamil uh, Hindus there, they perform these very high-intensity rituals, rituals that involve a lot of pain and suffering. And there again, we found that after going through the ritual, not just those who, who suffered themselves, but also their family members who watched them suffer, they became more pro-social. Mm. We saw this because we tracked the levels of donation to charity. And we see that the people who go through these rituals, compared to other rituals and compared to people who do no rituals at all, they become much more pro-social. They will donate three times more money to charity. Yeah, another aspect of this that we explored was in the context of uh, sporting events. So we did studies with um, basketball fans here in the University of Connecticut. We have one of the best basketball teams in the NCAA, both men and women, especially our women, are uh, an outstanding team. So for one whole year, we followed basketball fans as they were going into the stadium and they were wearing um, portable physiological sensors. And we also followed groups of fans who were watching the game on television in a lab. And what we found is that the, the heart rate synchrony was much stronger in the stadium. Although the games were the same, it's not just about this external stimulus. Of course, the game will affect the, your physiological reactions, but it was mostly about this, the interactions between the fans that take place in the terraces. And we see that this... This synchrony at the group level predicts both the kind of experience that people have. So they find them, they have a more meaningful, more transformational experience when they're in the stadium. But that also predicts the way they're bonded to each other. We see that social cohesion increases. People feel closer to other fans when they watch the game in the stadium versus watching it on television. And that really tells us something about the, the physicality of ritual. For example, this is what we what people missed during the um, the COVID pandemic. At first, people were deprived of their rituals. And that was devastating. So for somebody to lose one of their loved ones to COVID and not be able to attend the funeral, 
that was dev- devastating, uh, of course. Soon thereafter, uh, they were people started doing all these virtual rituals, virtual graduation ceremonies, virtual funerals, virtual birthday parties, what have you. And of course, something is better than nothing. But but at no point did that feel yeah. uh, like the real thing. Yeah, yeah, not even close, not even close. Uh, you share some very intense stories about things involving body piercings, 63 needles on average is what I pulled from one section. And yet you note that physiologically they were, they were back to normal and maybe even better a few days after this was done. I enjoy endurance athletics. I've done a bunch of Ironmans and we won the race across America a few years ago. It reminded me of that because when you're doing those things, you just, it, as soon as it's done, Yes, you have a recovery period of 24 to 48 hours, but then you just feel better. Like, yes. Is there a connection between those two types of things? There are connections, but I think the rituals offer um, additional um, reasons for boosting well-being. So let me explain. In the study you're referring to, this this took part in Mauritius, and this was in the context of a Hindu ritual called the Taipusam Kavadi. This is one of the most intense rituals you will ever come across. It involves people building these large structures. They're miniature shrines. And they will carry those shrines in a pilgrimage to the the temple of the Lord Murugan, a Hindu god. And they do this for, for the better part of a day. So they might be walking for six hours carrying these structures that can weigh sometimes 120 pounds. And in one study, we measured those. And they will be barefooted on the burning asphalt, uh, which for me is impossible to take a single step on. And this is the midsummer tropical sun in, in Mauritius. But before they do that, that's not even the worst part, because before they do this, they gather at the riverbank, they perform these purification rituals, and then they have their bodies pierced. Some people might have one needle through their tongue or their, their forehead, but some will have hundreds. Uh, I was once talking to a little a young boy, he must have been 14 or 15. And I asked him how many needles he had during the ritual. And he said 500. And at first I didn't believe him. I, I thought there's not enough. It doesn't surfaces. fit. <laughs> there's not enough skin on this kid to have 500. I said, do you, do you mean 50, 50? He said, no, no, 500. And he turned around and showed me his back, which was completely full of little holes. But that's not even the, the most painful part because some some of the men will put huge skewers and rods, sometimes the size of broomsticks through their cheeks. And others will put hooks on their back, uh, on the skin of their back. And and by these hooks, they will drag these chariots mm. That, mm. Uh, that can be the size of a van. And they will imagine doing this for, for six hours, carrying the cavity, dragging this chariot behind you with a broomstick through your um, through your cheeks. And then when they reach the temple, finally, they they have to climb 242 steps, carrying their burden. Of course, not the chariot, but carrying the, the cavity with them. So this is pretty much a day of self-imposed torture. We looked at people's physiological responses during that ritual. And of course, as you can imagine, this is more stressful than anything else on their, uh, their everyday life. Not even close. Orders of magnitude. And yet, surprisingly, or perhaps not so, not so surprisingly, because that's why we were doing this study, we found that a few weeks later, uh, taking part in this ritual compared to those who didn't, um, contributed to higher overall well-being and quality of life for these people. 
So their cycle, first of all, their physiological stress, as you mentioned, they recover from that very quickly within a couple of days. But also in terms of their psychological well-being, uh, this had measurable benefits. And in fact, we found that the more they suffered during the ritual, the more needles they had in their bodies, yeah. and the the stronger their physiological responses, their uh, electrodermal activity, which is a measure of stress, the greater the benefits that they derived. So, now, how can we possibly explain this? Um, we we believe that there are at least a couple of different mechanisms happening here. So one is has to do with the physiological stimulation itself. And this is the part that might be very similar to running a marathon or doing an Ironman. So your, your body uh, experiences an electrochemical storm during those events. Um, your dopamine levels uh, shoot up uh, over prolonged suffering. Your endorphin levels increase. All of those things, they might have tangible antidepressant effects. They might have anxiolytic effects. We know, for example, that those who suffer from depression, they greatly benefit from regular Absolutely. exercise. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that when you're depressed, you you don't you feel don't like do exercising. It. Yeah. Another thing we know is that those who suffer from depression, one of the best um, ways of dealing with it is by socializing. And of course, again, when, when you're depressed, right. the last thing you want to do is socialize. Right. These rituals, they force people to to socialize and they force people to engage in these high intensity activities. And we know from all of our other studies that by taking part in those ceremonies, your social status increases, um, your um, people will trust you more, they will want to interact more with you. You establish those social bonds that you might then harvest. So people are more likely to socialize with others, they're more likely to be visited by others after those rituals. And all of that increases their well-being. There are, there are several studies. Some some people, one researcher said that this is the, the, the greatest and most surprising and perhaps the most important finding in the last few decades in health research is exactly how important the role of social support networks is in our health. There are studies that show that people have Absolutely. tighter support, social support networks. They have lower blood pressure, for example. And this is ritual, collective rituals are fundamental to this. In, in in all traditional societies and, and also in most contemporary societies. Um, this is one of the best ways of, of establishing social links through participating in collective rituals of all sorts, whether we're talking about going to church, uh, going to Burning Man, or uh, attending a college graduation. So coming back to the marathon or Ironman stuff, is, is there something about the, the big ones? So maybe a difference between the local 10K or even the marathon in your area and the Boston marathon or the Hawaii Ironman or something like that. Is there something that becomes more religious or ritual with those types of things? Because it's like, you don't even care. Well, outside of the winners, you don't care the person's Boston time. They're so happy that they ran Boston. Same thing with Kona. You don't care what the Ironman time was, but you finish Kona. Like, there's something very, it's like an exclusive group that, and it's really not, it's thousands of people, but it's a, it feels like an exclusive group in the bigger picture. But is that a completely different category? No, you're right. That for, for us human beings, for our species uh, alone, symbolism is, is deeply important. So the action is one thing. So you, you can have this, the same structure uh, in terms of the, the, the behavior. 
but then context can can uh, very often be extremely important. So taking part in a, in a sacred ritual has been in your generation for for ages is extremely important. Taking part in a college graduation uh, when when somebody in front of thousands of people gives you um, a piece of paper that that marks all of your achievements over the last four years that goes way beyond just marching along with with a group of other students. Similarly, um, conquering a particular peak even if it takes the the same effort uh, as to climb a different mountain, might have special significance. Running a particular marathon. Uh, This is because people care about uh, tradition. They care about symbolic connections. So by taking part in a ritualized event that so many others have taken part, that so many others consider important, you suddenly come to see yourself as being a member of that elite club, mm-hmm. member of that society of uh, fellows, if you will, that extends beyond uh, particular, a particular space sometimes or a particular uh, time. So if I take part in the same ritual that my my ancestors have performed, this connects me to, to my entire lineage. If I take part in a graduation ceremony, that connects me to a, to a society of scholars. And if I take part in a, in a marathon, that connects me to everybody who's ever taken part in that marathon. Yeah, interesting. It, it seems like you tapped into the integration between mind, body, and spirit. Can you just free flow, talk us through a little bit of your thoughts of that trilogy, if you will? This is one of the reasons that we see that religious rituals are, are particularly effective in producing these multiple effects that we see of, of ritual. We can perform rituals in all sorts of contexts, sometimes these rituals are, are connected to, to ideologies, to beliefs, to expectations. Sometimes they're not. And there there can be similar benefits, but I think there can be also um, layers and layers here that amplify those benefits. So, for example, if we all go out together and, and play a game of basketball, experiencing that physiological arousal together at the same time is a bonding experience. That's why you have things like corporate team building that involve mm-hmm. Um, uh, similar activities. But then when you uh, you can add another layer to this, and this is the layer of belief. So our expectations are also very powerful. If we take part in that ritual, uh, now with the belief that it will turn us into something else, it will turn us into warriors, it will, it will turn us, uh, a different type of ritual might turn you into a, a married couple. A different type of ritual might turn you into a different kind of uh, kin. That is an entirely uh, additional layer that rituals are very good at imposing on this. And we see that our expectations of of different rituals sometimes can take many different forms. People might get into this ritual by expecting specific outcomes. Um, This is not unlike the placebo effect. So if I perform a healing ritual with the belief that I'm going to be healed of an illness, I might experience some, some benefits on the base of that belief, just like I would experience if my doctor gave me a sugar pill by taking him that it would uh, help my my anxiety. Uh, there is, of course, a, also a flip side to this. In my book, I describe the, um, a, a particular example known as voodoo death. In this yes. example uh, that is found in, in certain societies, uh, particularly in, in Aboriginal Australian societies, there's a belief among some people that pointing a bone at someone might actually result in their uh, in their death. 
Now, this has to be done in a very ritualized way. It has to be a specific bone, perhaps of an emu or, or, or a human, and it has to be treated in very specific ways, and it has to be pointed by a ritual specialist, a sorcerer. But if you if you buy that belief, once you buy that belief, then the fact that somebody pointed a bone at you might can be extremely stressful. There are anecdotal reports of people who have actually died uh, or had fallen seriously ill after um, a bone being pointed at them. And you can imagine now that if you live in a society where everybody believes this to be true, having somebody do this to you or placing a curse on you, if you truly believe that curses have uh, have power, then it can be extremely stressful. But what is more, that belief is not, not just in your mind, it's in everybody else's mind. So perhaps the entire mm. community might start treating you as yes. if you were dead. They might start preparing your funeral. What would you do in that situation? Imagine how how painful that would be. And there are indeed reports from um, from medical doctors that, uh, who have had patients who came to them with that belief. And in some in some situations, they even performed placebo um, procedures on them just to make them feel that the, the curse has been lifted. Wow. I didn't think about the, the community piece of that. All right. For, for someone who's listening to this and might be saying, okay, this makes sense on a community level, but... How can I apply this personally to my own and the areas we talked about, health, wellness, and performance? What would be some of your thoughts? You have a chapter where you go into some of those things, but what would be some of your thoughts about the application of ritual on a personal level to benefit either health, wellness, or performance? So the the reason that cultural rituals are even possible and they're so effective to begin with is that uh, ritual comes very naturally to us. So at the individual level, first of all, we see that young children have rituals and, and uh, routines. They're obsessed with uh, order. They're obsessed with doing things just right, the w- just the right way. Something out of uh, I know this very well because right now I have a toddler in my house. <laughs> he, he always insists that everything has to be done in exactly the same way. So we know that ritual comes natural to us. We also know that ritual tends to surge in situations that are related to anxiety. Mm. Both. Um, in our lifespan, so not just children, but also um, there are rituals associated with pregnancy. Uh, there are things like postpartum OCD, and OCD is one condition that is characterized by hyper-ritualization, and so on and so forth. Uh, also, in different contexts, studies show, anthropological studies show that in in times of warfare, in times of natural disasters, or during things like uh, going to the casino, or um, performing in an athletic competition, all of those are contexts that are hyper-ritualized. Sure. Athletes are famous for their rituals <laughs> and superstitions. <laughs> I give the example of Rafa Nadal uh, in my book, and, and his rituals take up a whole page because he's so extremely ritualized. Why do we do this? Why do we do this in the face of anxiety? Does it help us? So to answer this question, uh, my colleagues and I did a series of experiments. First, we wanted to establish that this indeed is a natural response. So we brought people into a lab and we stressed them up, and then we used motion sensors to measure their movements. And we found that as they get more stressed, their behavior becomes more rigid, more repetitive, more redundant, just like a ritual. Hmm. Now, the next obvious question is, does that actually help? And then we did laboratory studies where we gave people uh, structured versus unstructured moves. So in one case, we guide their actions. They have to follow a dot on a screen, and it's the same number of 
movements, the same kind of movements, but in one case, they're very repetitive, they're structured. In the other case, they're not. And we do the same with utterances. And we see that I, uh, that helps them reduce stress at a physiological level. Their electrodermal activity changes, their heart rate variability changes. And we also see this in a real life context. So we went into Hindu temples and we we used wearable monitors to look at the stress responses of uh, people who are performing these reparative uh, ceremonies. They call them prayers, but a, a prayer in uh, in a Hindu temple is is not what Christians typically have in mind. They're they're more action based. And compared to those who don't perform these, or who are in a different context outside of the temple, they uh, are better able to reduce their anxiety. Now, why would that happen? Why is it that these that reparative rituals help people deal with anxiety? Why is it that we turn to those rituals in the first place? Our theory uh, has to do with the way our brain works. Our brain, the consensus today is that our brain is not just a passive uh, data processor. It makes active inferences. Before I finish a sentence, your brain has an idea about what I'm going to say. It's a predictor. Yeah, 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 exactly. When I'm driving my car, I have, my brain has to constantly predict not where I am right now, but also where I will be in a few seconds and where all the other cars will be and so on and so forth. Because our brain is uh, designed to make predictions when we have low predictive power, in other words, when we experience uncertainty, we experience this as stress. And uncertainty is very stressful to us. Think of some of the most stressful times in our lives. They might be related to illness. We don't know what the outcome will be. They might be related to, to things like uh, warfare or applying for, a, for an important uh, job. We don't know if we're going to get it. Or perhaps fearing that we might lose our job. All of those things. If ritual is anything, ritual is uh, structure. When we perform a ritual, we know exactly what is going to happen. We know exactly how it's going to happen. And we know exactly when it is going to happen. And this gives us a sense of predictability and a sense of control. We feel that we're on top of the situation. Hmm. This is exactly where we're, why you see that when people are stressed, they they fidget or they they perform what is familiar to them. They perform rituals and they enact superstitions. This gives us a sense of control and predictability. And it doesn't really matter whether this uh, control is real. All that matters, all that matters is that it has real and measurable outcomes. It helps reduce anxiety. And we know this from a whole series of studies that I just described. And then we look at people like Nadal and we say, oh my word, one of the greatest to ever play the game. Do you do you say it works or do you say it worked once and so he just kept repeating it or? Worked? I would say it works for him. There are in fact studies on athletes that show that elite athletes have more rituals than average athletes. Yeah. Now somebody might say, I would expect the opposite, right? The better you are as an athlete, the more you should rely on your own skill and, and less on, on things like ritual. It and is and there's less anxiety and there's less stress because you're one of the top five in the world, whatever. Yeah, you have more confidence, yeah. presumably, and so on and so forth. Except the research shows the opposite. Mm. And the explanation is that those athletes, they face higher stakes. Mm. There's more uncertainty mm. in, yes. in tougher competitions. You're, not, you're never competing. You're always competing against somebody else, right? So the stakes are higher and the uh, and uncertainty is, uh, is higher. Wow. 
And and you see that those athletes have more, not, not fewer rituals. And does that work? Again, there are studies that show that this works. There are studies that show that if you, uh, when, when athletes um, enact a ritual before shooting free throws or before batting in baseball, their performance actually uh, improves. Not through some kind of magical causation, but it improves because they're, uh, their confidence improves. And this this comes through a sense of control that ritual conveys. And there are other studies that show that if you if you disrupt those rituals, then performance drops. If you prevent somebody from doing their, their familiar rituals in sports, then they perform worse. I don't know if you've caught any of the Breakpoint Netflix documentary, but it, it follows these professional tennis players through. I think the creators of that need to get you on the show and talk about this a little bit. So... That we'll look for you on a future episode. Uh, you have a chapter you call it the glue chapter, and, and you note that there seem to be two diametrically opposite cultural attractors. One is centered around repetition. The other is relying on arousal. What, what do you mean by that? So if you look at the, um, the world's rituals, they, they, they seem to be infinitely variable. They're so diverse, as if anything goes. But in mm. fact, there, um, there are studies that show that if you, th- there are certain parameters that pretty much all rituals in the world, they will fall under one of two main clusters. One of them involves higher petition, but lower arousal. Think about going to church every, every week or praying at home every day. Um, and the other attractor is involves higher arousal, but, um, low frequency these are things the ceremonies that are, that are maybe happen once a year or once in a lifetime things like uh, weddings funerals college graduations presidential inaugurations maybe sometimes once in a generation the inauguration of a new king those rituals will tend to be full of uh, sensory pageantry bells and whistles um, and they will tend to be more emotional even things like holiday rituals, for example, they, they stimulate all of our senses at the same time. They're different than the rituals we perform every day. They're, they're more special. Now, each one of these types of rituals uh, can create uh, a sense of uh, cohesion through different paths. One way this can happen is through the, the kinds of effects that it has on our memory. They're, think of the kinds of memories that we, uh, we call semantic memories. These are the kinds of things that that we come to learn through repeated exposure. So a ritual that we perform every week, week in, week out. Um, it's like walking through a cornfield. If if you if you just walk once, then a few hours later the your tracks will be yeah. um, uncoverable. Right. But walk through the same path, exactly the same route every day, and through time the path will be carved onto that field. Now there's another way to, to carve a path. You can take a bulldozer and drive it through the field. So now you have a single instance, mm, of a, a traumatic arousal. perhaps instance yeah. that creates a very powerful memory. So the other type of memories that we, we tend to have are what we call episodic memories. These memories are sometimes called autobiographical because they, they are fundamental to our sense of who we are as a person. The time you, you, you saw your, uh, house burned down, um, 
um, the time you um, went into the battlefield, the time your team won the championship, your your wedding day, your the, the your first kiss, or the first time you uh, you made love to someone. All of these are episodic memories. They they stay in our minds as distinct episodes, and they're fundamental to the, our sense of personhood. Now, if you when you go through these events with other people, then the boundaries between the sense of who I am as a person and who I am as a group member begin to blur. This is why you you hear stories from soldiers, for example, uh, those who study soldiers. They repeatedly say that those who who choose to uh, risk their lives or maybe even sacrifice their lives, make the ultimate sacrifice as soldiers, they don't do it for the flag. They don't do it for, for any kind of ism, any kind of abstract ideal they do it for their comrades yeah. because that's who they've experienced the horrors of battle with that's who they've uh, been through traumatic situations with and in a sense some of these very painful rituals things like initiation rituals they mimic these situations in a safe space they they bring people together so they can suffer together or they can be extremely joyous together in a very controlled environment they don't wait until we go into the battlefield no because you need to do this when the stakes are high, you need the sense of brotherhood, the, the sense of bonding well in advance of going into the battlefield. And this is a, a technique that uh, our social institutions have used uh, through times immemorial. That's why even today you see that militaries, um, the, the tougher uh, the, the military unit is, uh, the tougher the initiation ritual. Yeah, yeah. This isn't the same thing, but I want to walk down this path to get your thoughts. It reminds me of something similar in, in the health and wellness side, the automate versus motivate. You've got the David Goggins and the Iron Cowboys and all those guys out there that are, you know, motivational speech and you got to go do this and blah. And then you have the automate side, the Wendy Woods, the B.J. Foggs, who are saying, make it, make it easy, make it automated, get rid of the, the hurdles. And it seems like there's a role for both almost like the arousal is the motivational speech, the repetition is the automate piece. Do you see an overlap between those or do you see them as, Brad, it doesn't really apply in this situation? No, absolutely. You, you need both of those. If, you're, if you want to design a truly bonded community, you need both of those elements. Let's take, for example, the workplace. At the workplace, to make a truly satisfactory, uh, satisfying uh, workplace, you know, the, you, there was a time where nobody cared about those, about the the well being of employees. That is both because the nature of work was different. Mostly, you needed uh, uh, a brute power, manual labor that was just lifting things and moving them around. Uh, but also simply because uh, employers didn't didn't care right. about the well being of their employees. This is changing both. Because our attitude towards uh, towards um, things like workers' rights is, has changed, but also through the realization that because of the new tasks that most labor involves today, a sense of uh, bonding and a sense of satisfaction is key to performance, to productivity. So how can you boost this productivity? And I would argue there that they, both these two modes, they need to, to coexist side by side. So at, at the workplace, you need... You need to have your routines. You need your perhaps your uh, your daily uh, coffee break, or or sharing a meal. Share, sharing a meal. There are studies that show that people who share uh, meals trust each other more. Mm, of course, seeing the same kind of insignia day in day out that gives you a sense of of community. That gives you uh, a sense that we're all part of this same 
entity. But then every once in a while, you want something uh, that will allow people to to bond, not in this impersonal way, that we're all part of this large group, but in a more, in a deeper interpersonal way, that we're brothers, you and I, those who work in this small uh, unit, we share the same office perhaps, or, or, uh, or something like that. Uh, perhaps once every year we have a, a big holiday celebration, and this is full of pageantry and and mm. there there are smells and and lights yeah. And, yeah. and perhaps music and dancing, or maybe we'll go out and and play paintball, uh, or we we go hiking, we we climb a, a mountain together, any one of those things that 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 help forge this deeper interpersonal connection that comes through shared arousal. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, just a couple more. I'm, I'm watching the time here. really appreciate this. You know, numerous studies have found religious individuals have better physical and mental health, greater life satisfaction, quality of life. However, you also note those benefits have little to do with the religious belief itself and much to do with participation in their communities. You, you mentioned that briefly early on in our discussion. Can you expand upon that a little bit for us? That is true. So there's a very long literature that um, looks into the uh, the relationship between religiosity and health and well-being. And the effects are, the results are a little bit of a mixed bag, but for the most part, there, there are a lot of studies that show that religious individuals, they live longer, they're, uh, they're more healthy, they have uh, better social connections, and so on and so forth. But once you start breaking this relationship down, what you see is that it's not a function of belief. It's not that within those communities, more religious individuals um, are healthier. It is those who take part in, in more uh, collective rituals. In fact, we found something similar in a study that we did at the University of Connecticut. For that study, we recruited students from Hillel, which is a, an organization um, uh, for Jewish students. And we collected uh, hormonal samples. We took cortisol samples in their hair and in their saliva, and we had uh, surveys that were used to assess uh, symptoms of anxiety and depression. And we also recorded how often they performed uh, different rituals in, in the context of uh, Hillel. And what we find there is that there is this correlation between ritual attendance. So those who perform more rituals, they have lower anxiety as measured across all three uh, measures. So the self-reports, the short-term uh, saliva samples that we took uh, from their uh, um, saliva concentrations, uh, um, cortisol in their saliva, and also long term. So in your hair, your uh, cortisol uh, in your body leaves markers that can that can be traced uh, in the long term. They're cumulative. Now in in the literature as a whole as well, when we break down these effects of uh, um, of the relationship between religiosity and health, that's what we tend to see. Among Christians, for example, it's those who go to church more often that uh, that seem to be healthier, that seem to have stronger social connections. And it's precisely because of the kinds of things that, we, uh, that we've been talking about uh, over this past hour. The ritual's ability to create a sense of uh, kinship, to, to establish social support networks, which are fundamental to our sense of well-being, uh, knowing that you have uh, people you can turn to for support is very important. Having somebody to to talk to is very important. Perhaps that could be a, a pastor. Perhaps that could be other participants in that ritual. But also the, the physical effects of a ritual. All of those things combine to make it a, 
um, to create those very positive effects that we that we detect. All right, last one. Turn the mirror around just a little bit. How have your the way that you've engaged in rituals in your own life changed as a result of your findings, as a result of your research all these years? Yeah, that's a good question because I came into this as a as a skeptic. My the big question that motivated my research is why do people do weird things? Things that make no sense. <laughs> they seem to make no sense. And therefore the, the title of my book eventually became How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. So that tells you a lot about how how my perspective uh, changed. Uh, first of all, I realized that uh, ritual is not just uh, a matter of uh, religion. It's not just a matter of uh, more traditional groups. It's everywhere. It's uh, it's found in uh, in all of our societies, in all of our institutions, and not just uh, our religious institutions, but in the courtrooms and in our universities, in our homes, of mm-hmm. course. And it's very important um, for individuals and communities alike. So for me... Uh, I'm much more conscious now, for example, of, uh, of participating in family rituals, family traditions during the holidays, especially now that we have a son and we want our son to be to experience those kinds of rituals, even if we didn't perform them before. Mm. So a few years back, we, we never had a Christmas tree in our house. Now we do. Since he was born, we do have that <laughs> because we want him to grow up uh, knowing these kinds of traditions and experiencing them. In my lab, I, I try to bring in rituals. I start every meeting in my lab by sharing everybody's accomplishments. And this has become a ritual now. So if we, if I forget sometimes, one of the students will, will remind me <laughs> that we need to do this. In the morning, when I do, I make my morning coffee. It has to be done in, in the same cup, this cup right, right here. And it has to be done even if I don't drink it. Now, that's exactly what tells you that it is a ritual. Interesting. So, so then what do you do on those days? If there's no time to drink my coffee, I will make it. And in fact, my son now, uh, as I take him to daycare, if he sees that I, my three-year-old son, if he realizes that I didn't make my coffee, he will complain. He will go to the coffee <laughs> machine and point to it and ask me to make coffee <laughs> for me. Oh, that is awesome. So, So you literally make it, you just maybe don't drink it. Sometimes, yeah. Uh, if I don't have time, I will still make it. I will, I will spend the time to make it, even if I don't have time to drink it. Interesting. Interesting. Try to say your name right here, Dr. Zigalatis Close. There's not a person in the English-speaking world who can <laughs> say my name correctly, but Close. I'll take it. All right. Well, thanks so much. This really was helpful. Very interesting. Great job on the book. Again, everybody, it's called Ritual, and you're going to hear a lot about this one. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. For some of you, this podcast has become a ritual in your life, and that means a lot to us. We've seen immense growth this year, and that's a tribute to you, our listeners, for sharing it with others. So thank you. If you're an employer, EAP, or wellness provider, and you're trying to figure out a better way to bring best-in-class, nationally board-certified coaching into your program or platform, Catalyst Coaching 360 might be just what you're looking for. The ease of integration value-based pricing, and 17-year history of providing the best in employee health and wellness coaching makes Catalyst Coaching 360 the choice for so many around the country. You want to talk about it? Reach out to us anytime. Results at CatalystCoaching360.com. That's results at CatalystCoaching360.com. Or you can head over to the website, CatalystCoaching360.com. And now, it's time to be a Catalyst.
This is Catalyst Coaching 360, Dr. Brad Cooper. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.